You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors and they're talked about by a black author. And you can listen if you are black or not black. That is okay. This week on the podcast, we're discussing chapter three of Andre Brock Jr.'s Distributed Blackness, a book about black people on the internet, black techno culture, and what it all means. And so I guess we'll give a quick summary. I have to say I got a new microphone this week retired my blue snowball and now we are using the blue yeti so i got a new microphone so i'm distributing this blackness uh through a new hardware okay so anyway a quick uh summary of andre brock jr's work so his basic premise is that blackness is a thing that helps navigate this racialized america and it's an informational identity And it can be transmitted through a number of ways. In doing so, it helps black people primarily navigate America. And there's a number of different uh, things that go along with that. Libidinal energy, pathos, not the traditional term of pathos, uh, kairos, and a couple of other things. But as an example, and I think this was the best example, he used it in the introduction to the book. uh, The Green Book, you may be familiar with the movie is an example of distributed blackness. The highways of America were a network. The knowledge to be able to navigate them was the green book. That's the informational identity, uh, blackness, that is distributed to other black people so that they know how to survive in America. And his point is that that is what's happening on the internet today. That's how black people use the internet. And he also has a couple of things. So that so chapter one uh, and the introduction basically set up his premises and like his his methodologies and a few points that he comes back to repeatedly. One, that the default mode of the Internet is assumed to be straight white middle class males. Two, he talks about the idea of blackness being online and how it's niche, but also visible and how black people can curate their identities online in a way that they couldn't before. And then also in this chapter, he introduces critical techno-culture discourse analysis, which is a methodology that he created to be able to talk about blackness online. So that was chapter one. Chapter two talks about the browser Blackbird, and it's more like what we get in chapter three, which we're going to talk about today. So I'll go ahead and lay out how he talks about those things. He talks about them as a technical artifact, That is the hardware, how to use it, the actual software itself, that kind of thing. Then he talks about the practice of using it. And then he discusses the beliefs around it. So with Blackbird, he goes through all of that, how the browser was created through Firefox, who, where you could get it, what features it came with, and then reactions to it. And uh, so that's essentially what last week's chapter was about. This week's chapter, and the reason I chose to do this week's chapter as a standalone and not two chapters, is because the next two chapters in the book are both about respectability politics. It might be a different name that he uses. I can't remember right now, but it's called part one and part two, the next two chapters. So 
I figured that's just better to keep those two together. And it's the summer. I have time to do extra podcasts So uh, when I'm not teaching. So anyway, this week's chapter, chapter three, is called The Black Purposes of Space Travel, Black Twitter as Black Technoculture. So uh, assuming that you've either read this chapter or listened to the podcast last week or are just generally interested in this or you know something about Black Twitter, assuming that any of those things are true, you'll be fine. If none of those things are true, you might be a little bit lost. So the way I wanted to talk about this today is a little bit different than the way I talked about it last week where I was just relaying information because I thought... You know, last week when we were talking about the book and its first couple of chapters, we have to like lay down the groundwork like I just did in that summary of what is this book about? What's it trying to tell us? And what is its methodology? Well, we know all of that now, so we don't need to go through that again. So I'm more just going to hit on the salient points here. And to do that, I'm going to go to the very end. And at the very end, so let's read the title of the chapter again. Then I'm going to go to the end of the chapter and read Brock's quote, which I think sums up his point and what he's trying to do. And then I'm going to go back to the beginning. So we're going to go uh, title and beginning. Okay. So again, the name of this chapter, the black purposes of space travel, black Twitter is black technoculture. So that's a lot there. Okay. And then the quote I want to read is our phones create a virtual space that often serves to brighten or survive the physical spaces that black folk must navigate daily. To describe our actions in that space as efficient or modern misses the point. Bridging the reaches of space and time while grounded by black cultural discourses is the black version of space travel. So that's quite a claim. So in a way, what this chapter is trying to do is establish black Twitter as a black technocultural practice which I don't think is too much of a leap, but we'll get to exactly what he means by that in a second. But another thing is to establish it as like some kind of space travel. And I'm not being facetious. I Obviously, he doesn't mean a literal space travel. I think he means more philosophically based. And that can be, the, that can be true too. It just feels a bit grandiose for something like Twitter. And so before I dive into any specifics here, I thought the entire time I was reading this chapter, does black Twitter have an outsized importance in black people's lives? Or does Twitter have an outsized importance in people's lives? Or does social media have an outsized importance in people's lives? Or is are none of these things true? Is it more true that just we kind of, when we're discussing these things, place more importance on them than is actually true in real life. So with that being said, let me let me shed some light on what I'm talking about. He opens the chapter by talking about the poet Amiri Baraka and he quotes him at length in this poem where he's he's saying uh what it would mean to be able to express himself in full, what it would mean to actually be able to get everything that he has inside of him out onto a page. So I don't know if I'm going to read the whole poem, but I'm going to have to read a good little portion of it here. And yeah, so the poem is, if I invented a world, if I invented a word placing machine, an expression scriber, if you will, then I would have a kind of instrument into which I could step and spit or sprawl or hang and use not only my fingers to make words, express feelings, but elbows, feet, head behind and all sounds I wanted 
screams, grunts, taps, itches, I'd have magnetically recorded at the same time and translated into word, or perhaps even the final expressed thought filling would not be merely word or sheet, but itself the expression three-dimensional, able to be touched, tasted, or felt, or entered, or, he or heard, or carried like a speaking, singing, constantly communicating charm. I was wrong. It wasn't a poem. I thought it was a poem. That's just Bar uh, Baraka's uh, writing style. But anyway, so there's this idea that like an expression machine, something that gets across all you're trying to say. And so what Brock is eventually arguing in this chapter is that that's kind of what black Twitter does. And he says that Baraka has three points there in his passage. The first is cultural. The second is technological and the third is technocultural and that what Brock is describing is a informational blackness. I don't disagree with any of that. I just don't know that Twitter's that thing. And I don't know what year Brock wrote this in, but he had seen Thelonious Monk play the piano, I'm sure. And that's immediately what I thought of when he says that line, elbows, feet, head behind and all the sounds I wanted. There's this, um, there's not one, there's a hundred recordings of Thelonious Monk, you know, playing the piano. He'll like take his forearm and just hit the piano key. So it made me think of that. It also made me think of DJ Cool Herc, who, you know, ever since reading that book and thinking about it more and more, who took technology and fiddled with it until he could make those machines express themselves in a way that, you know, made sense to him. So I thought that was interesting. So I mainly thought of music, but what if we had a way, what if you can't play music, what are you supposed to do? And so the answer apparently is black Twitter. And I, <laughs> I mean, that's, this is my problem with it. I just, it's still Twitter. At the end of the day, I'm reading this passage and going like, yeah, okay. I get how black people are using Twitter in an interesting way. And I get how it's made it's elevated Twitter from something that could be, you know, very banal and pointless to something that kind of has its own, what he likes to use libidinal energy, but yeah, it's got its own joy of life in it. It's got its own, like it's added something to it that took it past just this plain message board that it was basically into like another thing. Still that other thing that it's brought itself to is not art. I'm not saying Brock's saying it's art. He's saying it's some kind of like next level expression machine. And that I just don't know about. But I agree with the, the general premise that um, Twitter didn't like Twitter wouldn't exist the way it exists today if it wasn't for black people molding it. And, you know, the evidence for that is everything that Brock cites in his book. And then the fact that he um, he cites the the article by. Farhad Manju and Slate, which is called How Black People Use Twitter. And the reason this article is important is because if white people didn't know about it, now they would know even more about it by reading this article. And once they knew about it, they started to adopt the ways in which black people were using Twitter. And I have to say, some of those ways I don't like. Like, I don't like a, I, one of my least favorite things on Twitter. Tell me about a time you did this. So tell me about a time you did that. And the reason I don't like this. So this. All right. So let's get into the the three stage thing of what Brock's talking about. So the first one is technical artifact. So the reason I don't like that call and response activity on Twitter, which is definitely a thing in the black community, 
the reason I don't like it on Twitter is because I, when the, when Black Twitter first came, you know, around when the service was first offered, I think it was like 2009, 2010. I had Twitter then, but I would send my tweets on like a flip phone using um, Brock talks about. I think you had to like write like four zero four zero four. I did that, and I couldn't scroll other people's tweets. So I was never there in time. And that's one of the things he talks about in this pa- uh, in this uh, in this chapter. He says there's a snooze you lose aspect to black Twitter. And I always was snoozing. So I now and now I live in China. So I'm 15 hours ahead of anybody on the West Coast who I grew up with and 12 hours ahead of anybody on the East Coast. So by the time I log on to Twitter, I've missed everything for the day. And so the only time I'm ever on time for anything on Twitter is basketball. That's the only time I'll be on uh, Twitter when something is happening and I'm like there in the moment. But everything else I just miss. So anyway, that's why I don't like those call and response things on Twitter. I'm always left out of them. But so I agree with Brock. Definitely, it is a snooze lose proposition. But the technical artifact aspect of it, the reason he was saying that this, or one of the reasons he cites is this being like a, a thing that caught on with black people was you could get on the internet through your mobile phone, right? So if you didn't have a computer and you were a black teenager and let's say you didn't have a lot of money, but you had a phone, you could get on through your phone. You still had to have a smartphone, but like, you know, you might get an iPhone from T-Mobile or whatever. And then you could, you could hook that up to Twitter and be on Twitter. Whereas if you got a computer, you'll be doing a hundred other things. But like, if you're just on Twitter, on your phone, you know, that's probably like why Weibo is so popular here. Cause so many people in China, when, when the internet first exploded here, the thing you could afford was a mobile device. So you get a mobile device, you get on Weibo and you can just use that. But so anyway, okay. I, so I'm kind of salty because I was too poor even for the, for the iPhone. I had a, I don't even know what I had. Like when I first graduated high school, I had good phones. So I worked at T-Mobile, but then when I went and transferred to university, that all changed because I just didn't have every, all of the expenses went to university and um, maybe a few parties here or there, but I didn't have the money for the, uh, for the, for the nice phone. So I wasn't on Twitter like that. Oh, so, so the other thing about this chapter is as a technical artifact, Brock talks about the way that Twitter arrived and um, he cites this moment by some writer, I can't remember the name, but he cites this moment by him and he talks about these uh, these Yo Mama jokes. Oh man, these are terrible. But I want to bring it up for two reasons. For one, the Yo Mama jokes are awful. But one is um, I want to read Brock's description of Yo Mama jokes. So here we go. For Yo Mama snaps to be rhetorically effective, they must connect the sacred feminine body with a surreal embodied, often ridiculous, an arcane condition, phenomenon, or artifact. In doing so, they express a libidinal, sensual joy and critique in pithy, often humorous terms. I know that he finished writing that and probably sent the sentence to somebody and was like, I'm talking about your mom jokes, and then just laughed. Uh, Okay, here are the your mom jokes. I'm going to read the three that he brings up and... Brock, I believe, thinks all of them are terrible. They are all bad. But all right. So one is, uh, your mom's such a hoe. They set up robocalls for all her booty calls. This one, the rhythm is just all off on it. It's not that bad. It's just the rhythm of the joke doesn't work. You know? Like, it's not a good joke. But, and whatever. It's inappropriate. Fine. 
but like it's more just the rhythm doesn't work. All right. Second one by Wired writer Lore Joberg. Does not sound like a black name, but you never do know. Uh, your mom is so fat she got an endorsement from General Mills. It's just so basic, you know? And General Mills isn't even a funny food company. The third one. Uh, your mom is so fat John McCain looked into her eyes and saw three letters KFC. I've thought about this one for days and I really don't even get... So the guy who started this thread, uh, last name Dash, can't remember who he is exactly. He said this was the best one. And like, I was thinking like, am I missing something? I like, what am I missing here? So I, I don't, I don't know, but that's a really bad joke. Just terrible. Okay. But anyway, so that's the, that's the first part is a technical artifact. So yeah. So black people were using this, this, uh, this service more so than, than other people, according to the article in Slate. 25% of Twitter users were black, but people don't really know. But so black teenagers were using this presumably because, you know, you could get it on a mobile device and you could just plug in and, and be connected to the world. And especially you could connect to other people in the world who are like you. So that's, that's the uh, black Twitter as a technical artifact. Now, as a practice, he goes through and talks about the different, what, different ways black Twitter is used. And then this kind of gets back to what I was saying earlier. He talks about how black Twitter is judged because it is supposed to be a thing that leads to direct action, uh, but instead it's seen as frivolous. And this is definitely true. Like, so this is a very weird balancing act here. It's definitely true that when black people do stuff that is like leisurely, it's like, oh, why aren't you, why don't you work harder? Why, why did you spend money on the iPad instead of doing this? Or, you know, why did you... Why are you on Twitter making jokes about ghetto Santa Claus instead of getting the community organized? Like, like we all have to be militant Malcolm X's like every minute of every day. Cause that's, that's fair. That's that, that's what we should have to do. So there is true there. It's true that there is that aspect of it, but, and so I guess here's the question, how much of that is true for everybody though? Because every time I see anybody on social media, including myself, I just think what a giant waste of time that is. And I think we all do for certain types of social media, you know, like if you use Instagram, then you look at everybody on Twitter and you're like, what a bunch of idiots. It's much better to just post four photos on Instagram and scroll for 10 minutes and be done. Or if you use Facebook, you look at everybody on Twitter and, you know, say this, or if you use Reddit, you look at everybody on Facebook and say that. So I think it's pretty common for everybody to think it's a waste of time. I think there's obviously an added component when you throw in the black aspect because people are always going to judge that differently. But it's so it's kind of hard to balance. I don't know that anybody looks at Twitter for anybody and says the way that they're using that is good. They're using that in a good progressive way. Same thing for Facebook. It, I think Facebook's almost purely destructive. I wonder, I wonder if you, if you went, I don't know if we call it white Facebook, but we kind of just oughta, but let's call it right Facebook, black Twitter versus right Facebook, which one would be looked at as more like, this is a bad thing. And these people are wasting their time. I think the right Facebook would be, and, uh, I think they'd be right. Okay. And then the other thing that is big in this as practice section is talking about signifying. And I believe this comes from Henry Louis Gates. Uh, yeah, so 
Henry Louis Gates wrote in a 1983 book. I, he just wrote Gates in the book, actually. Uh, Brock did. I, I didn't check because I just assumed it was Henry Louis Gates. And now that I'm doing this, I, I, I'm pretty sure it has to be Henry Louis Gates. Okay. Henry Louis Gates contends that signifying is a discursive constitution of black identity that turns on play and chain of signifiers rather than straightforward transmission of information. When signifying happens, the interlocutor, the interlocutor, is inventively redefining an object or phenomenon using black cultural commonplaces and philosophy. What are we talking about here? First of all, signifying is spelled with an apostrophe at the end and we've dropped the G. We're talking about semiotics here and we need to back up for a second and define signs, signifiers, and the signified. So Brock quotes a French writer whose name I'm not going to be able to pronounce correctly, but we'll give it a go. De Sassere. He quotes him as saying that signs are composed of a form that or signs are anything that represents something other than itself, right? That's a sign. The signs are composed of a form that the sign takes. That's the signifier. And then the concept the sign represents, that's the signified. So I'll just read the sentence. De Saussure argues that signs are composed of a form the sign takes. That's the signifier. And the concept of and the concept of the sign represents the signified. Okay, it's not an easy concept, but sign, signifier, signified. Okay, those are the three things. Sign is anything that represents something else. The signifier is the form the sign takes, and the concept behind it is the signified. Signifying is essentially the black version of this that Gates is singling out to say this is specific to black identity and that what makes this special is that black identity, and let's go back to his quote, turns on the play and chain of signifiers rather than the straightforward transmission of information. So if the sign and the signifier are related by the signifier being the thing that is the form of the sign, and then the signified is the concept, signifying in black culture plays on these three things without necessarily relaying information in a straightforward way. All of that being said, Brock points out that black Twitter practice and the hacked, the hashtag in particular serves as a signifier. Let's do it in order as sign signifier and signified marking the concept to be signified. Okay. The cultural context within which the tweet should be understood. Okay. And the call awaiting a response. So there you go. Uh, hopefully that all made sense. I, and I actually do think, I mean, the other, whatever, I had qualms with the other claims. I actually think that one makes perfect sense. Well, perfect sense. It's a difficult concept, but I think in general it makes sense. And yeah, the, there's a big part of this where, and I didn't know that this was true, that the hashtag really was Black Twitter's doing. It was always there, but before it was used for like, like in the Slate article he mentions, like it was used for like, you know, live events or whatever. Like the, the thing I still use hashtags for, like I'm watching the, the Warriors vs. Celtics finals. It was black folks who were using it for like things you hear at your uncle's house or what was the, what was that? What was the one in the book? It was, um, oh, words, you know, that are going to get you in trouble or something like that. Something like that. Uh, the, these, these things, which are, you know, basically like setups. And then people come through with like the punchlines or as Brock says, the call. And then you, and then you got to come with the comeback. And it, for one, you definitely have to be available on Twitter to do these things. Like if you show up 10 hours later, like I always do, no one's going to care about your funny little joke. 
you know, it just doesn't work. So yeah, but anyway, I, I didn't realize that black Twitter was the reason why those things got going. Like in the slate article, it says that the top trending topics were always live events. And then the only thing besides that, that would be trending would be a topic that was started by a black Twitter user and then blown up on black Twitter. Now, when you go to Twitter, you see things all the time that are like non black Twitter hashtags, but they're clearly that style. And I always wondered where those things came from. And I didn't know that it got started by black Twitter because as Brock points out throughout the book, not everybody who's black and was on Twitter was using Twitter in this way. Like I wasn't the, the article in slate quotes a couple of people who write for the root. And one of the guys who started black planet, he wasn't using it that way. He started black planet and he wasn't using black Twitter that way. So, you know, I, I, I was baffled by those, but, but in the last couple of years, I've got on and seen things through like different black people I follow granted hours later, but I've seen things like that. You remember last year when that lady didn't wash the legs, it came out that she didn't wash the legs and everybody was all over. I was like, Oh, okay. And stuff like that. So I've seen things like that, but, um, in general, I didn't know that the hashtag got really big because of black Twitter and big in a way that was different than how it was originally either intended or basically used. So that was interesting. I just thought that was interesting in general. I, I really did not know that. And you know, the craziest thing is I really have been on Twitter this entire time. I, th I think I've been on since 2010 or maybe 09. I use it daily. I just, I never do any of that call and response stuff, but this goes back to me, like basically never writing on message boards. If it's not about basketball, I usually don't talk about it on Twitter. All right. So the last section of this, and then we're going to be done for this week was as a set of beliefs. And so we kind of already covered this. We covered Brock's conclusion at the end that this is, um, some version of space travel. I think he means that in non grandiose, grandiose terms. He doesn't obviously mean space travel, but he means this way of exploring temporality while using a black cultural discourse and navigating through racialized America. It's an interesting concept. It's just too grandiose for me to get there with something like Twitter. Because at the end of the day, Twitter just doesn't matter. And I feel like any other version of those things that would allow you to explore space and time would matter. Like if the other things disappeared that we could possibly come up with as examples of things that have done that, you know, like different forms of music or different forms of informational blackness, like the green book, if those things disappeared. You'd go, yeah, that was bad. We miss those things. We wish those things were still here. I don't know if that's true for Twitter, even black Twitter, but I wasn't a person who was involved in it. So, you know, maybe I'm looking at it with an outsider's perspective that can't possibly appreciate it in the right way. The last two things I want to say about the set of beliefs, there's two things. One is a phraseology that he used on page 119. And I just like this phraseology. I've been using it ever since college. And me and my friend used to talk about it all the time with um, the movies of Pedro Amodovar or Almodovar, I usually say it wrong, how he would have characters in movies who just happen to be gay. And it was cool because, um, you know, you don't, you want more gay characters, but like, it doesn't mean that you can't have a gay character who's crazy or a gay character who's a serial killer or a gay character who's boring, you know, like, or just a gay character who's gay and like, yeah, they're gay. Like, 
is that the first do they walk into the scene with it stamped on their forehead no oh okay so that's tougher to do with uh black people because you always walk in everywhere with um blackness stamped on your forehead well i should say with black stamped on your forehead not necessarily blackness because there's intentionality with blackness as brock points out but so he's talking about people writing about black twitter and he's talking about these couple of reporters, Hilton, Jamel Bowie, um, they worked for Post Burgie. Okay, so I'm just going to read the quote. Post Burgie's ge- genealogy is important for this inquiry, as it was one of the few bastions during the rise of Web 2.0 of experienced, tech-savvy, culturally competent journalists who happened to be black. And I love this because what this implies is you can hire black people to have a different cultural perspective and they'll have it because they're black and you don't have to just give them nothing but things to cover except um, what some other black person did. Like when Will Smith and uh, Chris Rock and that whole thing happened, I read my man from the New Yorker, Hilton, I forget his name at this moment, at this moment. And he wrote about that moment. And you know, when other black happenings happen, I read Wesley Morris, but also Wesley Morris and Hilton Owls. I can't remember his name right now. Uh, they write about other things as well. You know, they write about everything. And just having journalists that happen to be black is a really good thing. Of course, they'll comment on race when they want to or need to or feel the need to. But also can write about anything and have a different perspective, a culturally informed perspective that is valuable to mainstream america black america white america everybody so i just really like that phraseology so that's the second to last thing and the very last thing was going back to the hashtag so the the hashtag made black twitter mainstream and i just think it's kind of funny that like what was required for white people to finally crack the code on black culture more so than they ever have before was like collating data like there's just like five or six guys in front of a gigantic computer and it's spitting out all these like telex pages and they're pouring over the numbers and like doing calculations and like, oh my goodness, like black people have macaroni and cheese on Thanksgiving. I would have never known, you know, like it's crazy. You could have just had black friends. It's always a concept, like not go out of your way to have black friends, but just not go out of your way to not have black friends but anyway uh it's kind of funny that that's that's what happened and then now that it's become now so it got mainstream and then everybody got obsessed by it now it's being copied as it usually does and it's kind of turned back in on itself and brock talks about that how it's like gotten back to black twitter is just for black people again but i was wondering like is that going to just happen with other things too you know like other black spaces like hip-hop would be one of those spaces uh is there going to be like a i mean is that already happening hip-hop's already splintered into so many i know i'm obsessed with hip-hop and talk about it every podcast but what can you do but it's um and talk about informational blackness i mean there's one but is there going to be a like like there was a roots movement with the tribe called quest and the, the jungle brothers and de la soul at the beginning of the 90s is there going to be like a second one of those that just focuses on you know, the black identity and 
I would say, yeah, we already kind of have that with certain rappers. And then like the mainstreaming of hip hop is in its like own bucket, you know, so that you have like the pop star rappers and they can kind of be any race, but there'll always be like a subset of different type of black rappers that are just for black people. Is that what's going to happen? Kind of sort of seems like it might, but who knows? Anyway, thought it was an interesting concept. All right. That's pretty much going to do it for this week. That is the third chapter of Andre Brock Jr.'s Distributing Blackness. Next week, back with chapters four and five. Those are Black Online Discourse Part 1, Black Online Discourse Part 2. So Part 1 is called Ratchetry and Racism, and Part 2 is called Respectability. So we'll be doing both of those next week. They're definitely kind of related. Um, Yeah, all right. The music at the beginning and the end of the podcast is by the same person to keep running. Link is in the show notes. Uh, Anything that I've written is on my website, which is in the show notes. And uh, please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Pocket Cast, SoundCloud, YouTube. Going to start putting this on YouTube as a podcast. Just as a podcast, there'll be no video. Well, maybe eventually, but not for now. But anyway, all right. See you next week. So until then, stay safe, stay black, and keep reading. That's not fair. That's not fair at all. There was time now. There was was all the time I needed. That's not fair. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs>